Researchers in Chicago brought in a whole group of people. They tracked what they ate for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they tracked who stayed mentally clear as the years went by and who didn't. And certain patterns emerged. There are definitely foods that seem to accelerate dementia, and there are others that are protective. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Newton, Kansas, Sonoma, California, and Salzburg, Austria. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 52 of season 5, number 351 overall. You know, research shows that as we get older, the odds of things slipping out of our mind goes way up. In fact, some estimates show that about 40% of adults over the age of 65 have some form of memory impairment. Now, some will progress all the way up to an official diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. But for most of us, those frustrations begin and end with remembering somebody's face, but not their name, or searching for that right word, but you just can't pull it from your mind, or even forgetting where it is that you left your keys. So the question becomes then, can you get that memory back? Quite possibly. And a lot of that has to do with what it is that you are eating. Dr. Neil Barnard is here with us today. He is the author of Your Body in Balance, and he will be sharing the foods that you should be eating right now that can help to improve your memory. And of course, today we'll also be talking about the foods that you're going to want to remember not to eat because they can make you even more forgetful. Plus, questions from the exam roomies who joined us for the exam room live on YouTube and Facebook. You know, we do these live Q&As every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Would love for you to join us there. And some of the roomies had their minds absolutely blown when the topic of omega-3s came up. And what are the good plant-based sources of omega-3s? And one roomie even started doing backflips in the chat room when they realized that they were already growing one of the most potent sources of omega-3s in their garden right outside their back door. So that was a lot of fun. And if you feel like you are going to raise your health IQ by a point or two, we sure would appreciate it if you subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on apple podcast and when you do please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because that really does help others raise their health iq as well but before we start today a huge thank you to the gregory j Ryder memorial fund their support of the exam room live and the physicians committee is helping to raise our health iqs and makes this episode possible the gregory j Ryder memorial fund supports organizations just like ours that carry on greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people you you can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. It is time now to talk brain food and improving your memory by improving your diet. So what should you be eating? Let's find out with Dr. Barnard. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Chuck. Would you agree with that 40% estimate? I got that from a professor who released some research at UCLA, and 40% to me seems to be about right once you reach that certain age. Well, yes, and it's not uh, the same percentage with each age. So mid-60s, a little bit lower, but once you get to mid-70s and especially mid-80s and beyond, it gets higher. So yeah, it's definitely something where we want to take action. And how closely connected is diet and cognitive impairment or cognitive function? Do they really go hand in hand? Very strongly connected. Now, back, I, I couldn't have made that statement back in, say, 1980, because we were sort of speculating if you're old or if you got bad genes, that's what's going to bring on the dementia. But we now know that foods play a huge role. And the reason we know that is studies like the Chicago Health and Aging Project, which got started back in the 90s. And, and researchers in Chicago brought in a whole group of people. They tracked what they ate for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they tracked who stayed mentally clear as the years went by and who didn't. 
and certain patterns emerge. There are definitely foods that seem to accelerate dementia, and there's, there are others that are uh, protective. Let's start with the good then. Lee's question, which foods can help to improve memory? Well, there's, there's a whole list of things that are helpful. And, and as you're hinting, there are also some bad ones that you want to get away from. Uh, but the good things, first of all, let's just sing some praises for vegetables and fruits just in general. Researchers in Chicago started tracking people's cognitive decline. Are you kind of slipping as the years go by? And the people who just never met a vegetable that they liked, they just didn't include them in their diets at all. They had a much faster cognitive decline compared to people who ate vegetables and fruits, even if it was one serving per day. What's the difference? The difference, let's say you have a person who's eating about a serving per day. Over, over time, compared to a person who doesn't eat vegetables at all, it's a difference of about 11 years of cognitive aging. So a person who's 80 um, will be more like a person who's 69 if they're eating their vegetables and fruits throughout. Uh, but, but that's just the beginning. Uh, let's say a word for specific kinds of, of fruits. Uh, if you look at a blueberry, that dark purple color comes from what are called anthocyanins. This is a whole big group of pigments. It's the same ones that uh, nature brings out in the fall in the colored leaves on the trees. But anthocyanins in a certain form are in blueberries. And they are antioxidants that protect the berry. They appear to protect you too. University of Cincinnati researchers brought in people who were already up in years. They were already having some memory issues and they gave them blueberry juice, a uh, cup of day in the morning, or uh, a cup later in the day, that kind of thing. And they found significant benefit from that. But it doesn't have to be blueberries. Anything that's got that, that uh, dark purplish color like grapes, same thing. And, and one last food to mention, um, and this is a little bit of a mixed bag. Let's say I have uh, some almonds or some walnuts. They've got vitamin E in them. That vitamin E is a protector and people in Chicago eating the most vitamin E, not pills, vitamin E rich foods, cut their risk of Alzheimer's in half. Problem, the reason I say it's a little controversial is these are also the fattiest foods we have. And so if people are just overdoing it on the nuts, they're gonna gain weight. So my rule of thumb is about an ounce a day. And that gives you a, a, a long way toward the vitamin E that's gonna protect your brain. Well, let's talk about uh, fatty acids. A lot of people are wondering about omega-3s. The majority of people think omega-3, they think fish, but they want to eat that plant-based diet. So a two-parter then is how important are omega-3s for brain health? And two, what are some good plant-based sources? Yeah, great question, Chuck. Um, you do need them, um, but you do not need fish at all. Um, my favorite source of omega-3 is going to surprise you. It's green leafy vegetables. You send some broccoli to a laboratory and you think there isn't any fat in this, is there? They'll say, well, as a matter of fact, there are traces, maybe seven or 8% of the fats in green leafy vegetables come from, uh, or I'm sorry, seven or 8% of the calories come from fat. And a big percentage of that is good fat, specifically omega-3. And these are neglected in America's diet, but if you bring them back in, you're gonna get the healthiest source of omega-3. And then some people wanna go in a different route. They wanna go supplements. You go to the store, they have the fish oil omega-3. Right next to it, they've got the vegan omega-3, which is made from algae, healthier than the fish oil part, certainly cleaner and obviously more ethical too. And it's got the EPA and the DHA, just like the fish, only it's a healthier source. All right. So we've kind of uh, talked about the good. Now let's talk about the bad. And I'm just going to ask you if somebody is going to the drive through for lunch every single day, then coming home, ordering pizza, what is their risk of having some sort of cognitive impairment, whether it be dementia, Alzheimer's, or even just mild cognitive impairment compared to somebody who is eating a healthier plant-based diet? It's at least two or three times higher. And that's just because of the saturated fat part. This is one of the big headlines that came out of the Chicago Health and Aging Project. Uh, they looked at people who ate a lot of saturated fat. That's the, that's the solid fat that's in, in, say, bacon grease, for example, or in dairy fat. And the people who tended to avoid that, they just weren't going toward the bacon. They weren't doing the cheese. Um, those people cut their risk of Alzheimer's by, oh, half or to a third what it would otherwise have been. So if you want to avoid one thing, it's avoid things that are high in saturated fat. Number one, that's the dairy group. It's um, cheese, whole milk, 
uh, whole yogurt, that kind of thing. And then number two is the, the meat group. And, and by the way, when I'm talking about the meat group, even fish, if you get salmon, yeah, it has omega-3, but it has a surprising amount of saturated fat too. It's this real mixed bag that you're better off without. And we have a few people wondering about uh, those healthier plant-based sources of fat. Uh, you were talking about nuts earlier and, and, and avocados have been raised a time or two now in the chat as well. Um, just for the newbies out there, how does their fat compare to the fat from a cheeseburger in terms of you know total fat and saturated fat? Okay. The total fat in, well, in most plants, there's very little of any kind of fat, really. I'm talking about beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains. But the exceptions are exactly what you mentioned. Uh, the nuts, the seeds, um, the avocado, and the guacamole, and so forth. Now, their saving grace is that it's a much healthier kind of fat, meaning much, much lower in the bad fat, in the saturated fat, much lower. Even so, if a person's trying to trim their waistline, you don't want it to be a big guac fest because um, even though you're not getting so much saturated fat, you're still getting getting the calories, which are concentrated in any kind of fat. All right. Let's take a question here from Lisa at 1219. She's wondering, what about coconut products? It's in all sorts of vegan products, but it has a ton of saturated fat. So what's the stance there? You got it. Exactly. Uh, coconut uh, fat is marketed like crazy. Um, same with palm fat uh, or palm oil. It's heavily, heavily marketed, but you are exactly right. It's very high in saturated fat. It says so right on the label. And it'll do probably two things. Number one is it will raise your cholesterol. People may think, oh, no, it's natural. It doesn't. It will. Believe it. Saturated fat, even from coconuts, yes, it will raise your cholesterol. Same with palm oil. Um, and it is very likely also linked to Alzheimer's just like pork fat. So coconut fat, I wouldn't eat it. And if some, if a product has it in it, don't buy it. Same with palm oil. They are, as I say, marketed. They're in products everywhere nowadays, but I would read the label and I would leave them out of your uh, grocery cart. All right. And <laughs> Mary on YouTube, this is great. She's like, wait, 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 wait. Are you really telling me that the kale in my garden right now has omega-3s in it? It does. And it's just waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. Um, it's, it's, it's the, the specific omega-3 is called alpha linolenic acid. It's, um, the kale is really smart. It knows how to make it, uh, from the elements in the earth and the carbon dioxide it pulls out of the air and it makes that, uh, omega-3 for you and your body will take it from there. Let's take a question from Annie who was wondering whether mild cognitive impairment is in fact reversible. Probably. Yes. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, mild cognitive impairment, you're still you. You know, this is not where the brain has been destroyed. Um, you're still you. But what you're noticing is that names are dropping out, especially names and words. Um, and, 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 you know, that can happen to anybody. But if it's happening every day, if it's happening throughout the day um, and it's really interfering with your life, that's mild cognitive impairment. And uh, there have been a couple of studies. Um, I mentioned anthocyanins earlier. That's the purple coloring in blueberries and in grapes. And researchers have found that when people up their intake of those pigments in particular, uh, say uh, a cup of um, just you know or ordinary Concord grape juice in the morning, another one in the evening, that they do show over about a 90-day period improvements in memory for people who have mild cognitive impairment. The other big area here has been in exercise that uh, researchers have looked at individuals who had their memory kind of sputtering, and they said, okay, in addition to a healthy diet, let's lace up your sneakers. And they found that uh, that can help too, and the amount that has been shown to help is about a 40-minute brisk walk three times a week. So that's, that's doable for most people. Start small, especially if you have joint issues or your heart's not quite up to it, get your doctor's green light. But if you can work your way up to a 40-minute brisk walk, a brisk walk is not a trudge. It's also not running so fast you can't speak. Just a good brisk walk, 40 minutes, three times a week. How concerned do you think somebody should be if they are even, you know, as young as in their 30s up to their 50s? Definitely below that 65-year uh, threshold we were talking about earlier. And they are, like, they kind of at least once a week or so have trouble finding the right word, remembering somebody's name when they've known that person for years. And this does happen, you know, like about once a week, like what level of concern should they have at that point? I'm concerned you're working too hard. 
I'm gonna, <laughs> you do not have mild cognitive imp impairment. Th th that's not a once a week kind of thing. But but what is happening, and you're putting your finger on it, is you are probably stressed out and you're probably not sleeping. And that's one of the things that young people have a problem with all the time. Um, either we've got work demands and family demands, or frankly, what we're doing is just too darn interesting. Um, it, you know, you're watching TV or you're reading a book or something like that. And so people aren't getting the sleep they need. And the brain is exquisitely sensitive to sleep deprivation. And, and, and this, is, this is really important. Um, at the beginning of the night, you lie down and your brain has some job, jobs that it has to do at, at night. One, one is it has to sort out the things that have occurred to you during the day. You've learned some things, you've had experience, you might've learned uh, a new word. At the beginning of the night, it's just like a jumble of files all over your desk. Your brain has to sort it out. And mem memorizing means filing things in a place you can find them again. Um, and that's uh, called slow wave sleep. Um, the, the word comes from the fact that we put EEG leads on a person's scalp. And you can see the, the waves going along as the brain is doing this sorting process. Um, and, and then at the end of the night, um, it's like 3, 4, 5 a.m., the brain's got a different job. And that's REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And if you look at a person in a laboratory, you can see through their eyelids, their eyes darting around because they're dreaming about things. And that's when the brain is sorting out emotional issues. Yes, it's true. Your brain's got to make sense of all the goofy things that happened yesterday. And also physical things uh, like playing the guitar or your tennis game or something like that. Those things are integrated during rapid eye movement sleep. Okay, so um, we're young people, we're partying all night long, you're not sleeping, and you do this a couple days in a row, you have lost the slow wave sleep, so now you can't remember anything. And because you've lost the REM sleep, uh, you're grumpy. Um, it takes several days of appropriate sleep to get back on track. And my rule of thumb, do this, you, you will see this works. 10 o'clock, go to sleep. Doesn't matter how many emails you may have or how good the book or documentary is, 10 o'clock, go to sleep. And you will discover after about two or three days, your mental clarity comes back and those lapses stop occurring. Pete is wondering whether you would say that diet is as important for uh, memory function as sleep or how do those two compare? They're both really critically important. It's like with say lung cancer, is it more important to not be exposed to asbestos or more important to not be exposed to cigarettes? I mean, they're both an issue. And if a person is eating badly or not sleeping, they both can harm the brain, but they work together. If you're not sleeping, what are you doing? Chances are you're at the drive-through or you're in your refrigerator or something like that. One of the great things about being unconscious is you can't be eating ice cream. So sleeping, <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> sleeping and eating healthfully. They work hand in hand. Oh, that is the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. What is the health benefit of sleep? Not eating ice cream. Oh, that that amuses me to no end. It's um, the truth, you know, Chuck, you know exactly what I mean. If you're unconscious, nothing bad's going to happen. There you go. Uh, housekeeping question here. Mary Yaya Morgan, great name. Uh, she's like, okay, so you said that kale's got omega-3s, but what about collard greens? Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole family of green leafy vegetables um, will do so. And, and you picked collards, collards, kale, broccoli, cauliflower. They're all in the cruciferous family, which has um, not just the omega-3s, but lots of other good things uh, in them, uh, including cancer fighters. Uh, they have deeply colored pigments that protect the retina against macular degeneration. So it's really good to find a way to make um, greens part of your life. Um, some people like me even include them in their breakfast. Sounds funny, but what you'll discover is if you kind of get into this groove of making sure they're part of your life, you'll enjoy them. Quick tip, um, if greens just seem kind of bitter, don't wanna have them, uh, add some seasoned rice vinegar uh, balsamic vinegar, uh, a little bit of Bragg's aminos. I don't know if you've seen these at the health food store right next to the soy sauce, spray on some Bragg's or even just open up a lemon and dribble it on there. The slight bitterness of the green vegetables adds to the sourness of the lemon and they cancel each other out and it becomes kind of a sweet thing that you will come to love. Look at that. Look at that. That is kitchen science right there. Okay. It, it, it works. It works. Trust me. You'll see, uh, and, and you, and if you don't have greens in your routine, you'll think, where are they? This is not a meal anymore. Mm, you you want to have them. 
I'm going to try that. I'm putting that one to the test this week for sure. No doubt about it. Um, so we're talking about keeping fat low and that being important for memory function, which brings oil into the equation. And Pete has a great question, uh, sent this one from YouTube at 1222. He said, why is sunflower oil not good for us, but sunflower seeds are? Well, the seed has a little bit of oil, but it has a whole lot of other things in it too. It has some complex carbohydrates. It has some protein and it's got a whole lot of fiber. So this is true with anything you take, um, you can eat an olive or two olives or three or four or five. But if you have olive oil, that was a whole lot of olives where they pressed out the oil and they threw away everything else, all the pulp, all the fiber, um, all the nutrients. And so you're better off with the whole package if you can, if you can uh, include that in your routine. And uh, one more about omega-3s and the cooking process. When you're cooking the foods, if you're you're cooking those collard greens, are you cooking the omega-3s right out of them or do they retain throughout the cooking process? They'll, they'll, st they'll still be there. Um, your senses are right that it's, it's useful to have some raw uh, vegetables too in your routine. And we used to be a little bit worried about this actually with the cruciferous vegetables. We thought, gee, if, if they're raw, they could be harmful. Probably not. They're probably okay either way. So some raw, some cooked all to the good. All right. Let's take the uh, memory conversation now a step further and take a question from Krista, who was wondering, why is it that Alzheimer's disease is called type three diabetes? Uh, type three diabetes. Uh, for people who don't know what we're, we're talking about, type one means this is the, the diabetes that typically arises in children or young adults where the pancreas, which makes insulin, has stopped making insulin. The, the insulin producing cells are gone. And so a person has type one diabetes, no insulin. Type two means your body's making insulin, but your cells are resistant to it. And that insulin resistance leads to type two diabetes. Your blood sugar rises because the insulin's not doing its job. Type three is kind of a made up term, but people are using it to say, well, in Alzheimer's disease, there's a problem with blood sugar control too. And that's that now the cells of the brain seem to be resistant to insulin. Just like in type two, it's the, the, the muscle cells and, and the liver cells that are, that are not responding appropriately. So, so that's what they're talking about. And this is an area of active research here, but it really means that one of the contributors or one of the signs that's going along with Alzheimer's disease may be a disruption of, of sugar control within the brain. So stay tuned. And uh, Hamari is wondering what percentage in your estimation of Alzheimer's cases are preventable? Ah, oh, what a great question. Um, we can't give a precise answer, but let me give some give you some things that you could put into the equation. Um, way back when, when researchers realized that there are certain genes that can increase the risk of Alzheimer's, we got really bad news that the APOE epsilon four gene or APOE epsilon four allele, to be more technical, if you got it from one parent, your risk of Alzheimer's was tripled. If you got it from mom and dad, your, your risk of developing Alzheimer's was about 10 times higher compared to other people, or maybe even 15. So that gave us kind of a death sentence. We thought, all right, there, there's nothing I can do. Researchers went further though, and they started to notice that even with people who have genetic risk, lifestyle factors seem to make a difference. And the biggest lifestyle factor is food. Okay, so let's go back to Chicago, which I was mentioning earlier. They noticed that the people who were eating a, a really low saturated fat diet, that's the non-dairy, non-meat diet, or, or as close to it as you can get. I mentioned earlier that they were cutting their risk in half or less, maybe to about a third um, of what it would otherwise be, just, just from that one step alone. Let's say we also avoid trans fats. That's my next step. Uh, trans fats are in snack foods, uh, cupcakes, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you avoid that, that cuts about 80% of the risk out as well. Uh, compared to the people who eat a lot of them. And then we, we're going to add vitamin E, which I was mentioning earlier, that cuts the risk about 50%. Um, and let's say I exercise. If I put all these things together, my guess is that our risk of developing Alzheimer's is cut to probably maybe about 80%, either um, prevented or greatly, greatly delayed. And I am going to suggest that that may even be independent of genetic risk that a person has. Now we need much more research to make sure that this gets put to the good test, but all of the epidemiologic studies would suggest probably something in that, in that uh, percentage range.
Eighty percent. That is, uh, as they would say, statistically significant. You think about playing the lottery. Anybody would go out and buy a lottery ticket if they had an eighty percent chance of winning. So, as far as I'm concerned, I hear that eighty percent, and I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that I'm hitting all eighty percent of that eighty percent. You know, well, Chuck, absolutely. And and if you ever had a parent, a grandparent, a friend, somebody else you knew who developed Alzheimer's disease, I mean, they they lose everything that ever mattered to them. And there are all kinds of other things that people have added to the mix. There was a fascinating study in Canada where they were looking now not at diet and not at physical exercise. They were looking at, at what I'm going to call intellectual exercise. But the way they quantified it was how many languages do you speak? In Canada, there are people who speak one language. There are people who speak two. There are people who speak three, even four. Uh, but a fair number of people are bilingual, English, French. And they then tracked people and looked at how they did as time went on. And just speaking two languages as opposed to one would delay cognitive decline by about five years just for that alone. So you think, okay, wait a minute, note to self, eat healthfully, lace up my sneakers, get my sort of the linguistic neurology working in my brain. Um, all of these things will, will help. I don't think anything is perfect and bad things can happen no matter what, but um, we want to get all the protections in our corner that we possibly can. All right, let's uh, switch gears here, go back to regular brain health here. Mimi is wondering about eggs and brain health. Specifically, uh, she mentioned that she was told that eggs have a lot of choline in there. Um, choline, apparently good for memory. Is that accurate? Uh, well, well, choline is, is needed. There is a brain, there's a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And it's one of many neurotransmitters in the brain and choline is, goes into it. And eggs do have choline. However, eggs also have a lot of saturated fat, the, the very thing that we were indicting earlier. Um, if you have two eggs, you get more than three grams of saturated fat on your plate. So if you want a source of choline, have vegetables, have fruits, have beans, they will give you choline without that bad fat. And uh, you talked a lot about menopause in your book, Your Body in Balance. And Karen has an interesting question at 1226, if we can pull that up. She's wondering, what about your memory when you're going through menopause? Is there uh, anything that she could be eating, anything she could be doing to help alleviate those concerns? Oh, great question. Um, as you probably know, and, and as we've discussed in Your Body in Balance and in our research uh, since that time, is that diet can make such a big difference in menopausal symptoms. Um, we focused especially on what we call the vasomotor symptoms. That's the hot flashes that can just drive you crazy. And there, as you may remember, uh, there were really three steps. It was a completely plant-based diet, keeping oils low and taking advantage of soybeans. We used non-GMO soybeans, half a cup a day, and found that that combination, vegan diet, low oil, half cup soybeans, just really knocked out the hot flashes for a great many women. But as part of this research, we also looked at mood changes um, and how people felt physically and even how people felt sexually. And we found that in all of those areas, there was substantial improvement. Now, menopause is, people call it sort of a passage, and it really is. And that means that kind of no matter what you do, things are sooner or later going to get better. But what we have also found is that when people are on this healthy diet that I'm describing, a lot of that roller coaster just gets smoothed out in a really good way. Uh, comment from Caprice, 1234, 80%. Wow, we have control. Yeah, man, that's what the show is about. It's about raising the health IQ and feeling empowered. So excellent. Glad you're picking up what we're putting down. Um, Interesting question here from Brian. Uh, you talk about brain health. A lot of people now um, talk about concussions. You can't flip through the sports page or the newspaper, go online without hearing about concussions. And Brian is wondering whether there have been any studies on diet and concussion recovery. There's a lot has been written about it. Um, I have to say, I, in my view, it's mostly speculative. Um, but the whole idea is your brain has has had a physical it's had a physical injury. It's got to recover. The recovery is slow. Um, part of the recovery process is an inflammatory process. Anytime you have any kind of injury, you, you whack your thumb with a hammer. The first thing is the thumb um, swells up. It turns red. That's inflammation. And inflammation happens in the brain too. So if inflammation goes over time, it can damage 
the brain or any other part of the body where it's occurring. So people have advocated for anti-inflammatory diets. And that really means a diet that's very heavy on the vegetables and on the fruits. Those are good anti-inflammatory foods. And they argue very strongly and persuasively for avoiding things like dairy, animal-derived products. In general, those are pro-inflammatory. Um, it's good advice. I think we need more, more um, testing of it but it, it certainly makes sense and a lot has been written about it. And then the other area that some people have gone through, and here I think it's also speculative, is what will happen with certain supplements. Turmeric has, um, has been uh, looked at, resveratrol, which is, uh, uh, is something that's in grapes and you'll also see it at the health food store in a capsule. Um, these are being tested too with, with the same kind of thing in mind, that they are going to chill out the inf inflammatory process and help brain uh, recovery. Uh, stay tuned. I think we need more research, but there, but there's no reason not to put these to work. Um, they're they're certainly safe, and and hopefully they will be helpful. Yeah, look forward to seeing more of that research. Uh, certainly, there's so much being done on concussions right now. I think over the next decade, uh, we're really going to blow the roof off of that. Um, hopefully, get a, a quality answer there. Um, question from Claudia: I work overnight as a nurse. What can I do to one keep my brain in check and two avoid becoming overweight? Which foods should I be avoiding here? Okay, great question. Um, I'm wondering if what you're thinking about is really two things. One is that your day-night schedule might be getting goofed up. Um, if sometimes you're working during the day and then other times you're working at night, um, it's much harder than if you're consistent nights or consistent days. Your body needs to be able to get that good night's sleep or if you're a night worker, a good day's sleep. Um, and without it, you're just not gonna be yourself. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is you're trapped at work. It's the middle of the night and the cafeteria is closed um, or the snack machine is right there. And, and so a lot of the problem that we have with shift workers is that the availability of foods tends to lean toward the really unhealthy choices. So the best thing to do, needless to say, is to bring something with you. And that means really planning ahead and having it ready. And it really should be something without animal products. So vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, they are your friends. And so if that means that you're going to have a, a simple uh, vegan lasagna that you're bringing with you in a Pyrex bowl and you zap it in the microwave at work, fair enough. Or if it's a hummus sandwich or a stir fry or whatever it is, uh, make a little bit of extra during the day. Um, you can portion it out and bring it with you at night, but, but, but bringing foods with you will save your life an awful lot of times. Uh, we were talking about blueberries earlier in the show. Uh, Christy is wondering whether wild blueberries would be a healthier option than traditional. Uh, they both seem to be fine. You know, it's funny when this research was done, you, you, exactly what you'd think. You'd think it's got to be organic. It's got to, uh, whatever. Uh, maybe so. There's, there's, Theoretically, there are advantages to something that is made without pesticides, but the, the studies that have been done, particularly the ones that were published in the University of Cincinnati and made quite a lot of press, they used sort of ordinary Concord grape juice, the kind that would be on the, on the shelf as, you know, Welch's brand grape juice, that kind of stuff, um, which I don't believe is organic, but, but it seemed to do the trick. And that's because it's not the, the traces of pesticides that were the issue. It was presumably that big dose of anthocyanin, which is what makes it purple. And that's there regardless of how it was raised. And that seems to be, to be protective to the brain. I want to say hi to uh, Rochelle, who's watching right now, as well as uh, Sherry J, who's watching. And uh, Randy, thank you guys so very much for being some of the exam roomies who are tuned in today. Uh, let's take a hard right turn here and talk about something completely different as we have the doctor's mailbag open. It can be a grab bag. A uh, question from Barbara, wondering whether a vegan diet can help with lupus. Very well, yes, um, very likely. Lupus is an autoimmune condition like like many others like rheumatoid arthritis or many thyroid diseases um, and uh, many other conditions as well and a lot of people have discovered when they change their diet their lupus improves and what we believe is happening is that certain foods the proteins in these foods are mistaken by your body for an invader you, your body will recognize say a virus and it makes antibodies to kill the virus well let's say your body happens to come upon uh, dairy protein from a cheese sandwich that you ate. The, the body says, what's that protein? Could that be a virus? It makes an antibody to try to knock it out. And those antibodies are still circulating in your blood. 
and then they can hit your various body parts and cause an, an inflammatory reaction there. And that's what we're seeing with lupus. So when people get away from, dairy is probably the, the number one offender, but there are others too when they get away from them. And in many cases, they do better. And this was a Venus Williams issue. It, it wasn't lupus, but it was Sjogren's syndrome, also autoimmune. And she changed her diet and she got her game back. Question from Sean. Can you eat a plant-based diet if you have diverticulitis? Not only can you, but it's the treatment of choice. Um, diverticulitis, um, the, the, the digestive tract can sometimes develop little out pouchings, um, little crevices. And the old way of thinking, the kind of 1950s thing said, well, don't eat anything that could get caught in there. So they would, they would caution patients, don't eat seeds or nuts because they'll get caught in those little crevices. There was never any proof of that at, at all. It, it sounded like good advice, but it meant that people then were avoiding high fiber foods and their diverticulosis didn't get better. Diverticulosis means you have the outpouchings. If they get infected, that's diverticulitis. Um, the itis means it's inflamed. Um, and so we now recognize that people need to be on high fiber diets and the fiber king is the bean and right behind it is vegetables and fruits and whole grains. And the more, the more those are part of your diet, the more the, the, the um, diverticula can heal and are less likely to come back. All right. I want to say hi to Mona as well, who's hanging out, asking questions today in the chat room. Um, grab a couple of more before we wrap things up. How about one from Terry, wondering what the connection is between candida and diet? Can, for, for people who don't know what we're talking about, candida is... It's, it's a yeast infection, really, but it can occur in the mouth, it can occur in your throat, it can, it can be a vaginal infection. And people have, since probably the 1980s, been looking at how foods might play a role. Still somewhat speculative, if you ask me, but the foods that they have really put their fingers on are sugary foods, um, also alcohol, also dairy. And these kind of overlap. You don't think of dairy as a sugary food, but the number one, number one, nutrient in a glass of milk is milk sugar, lactose sugar. So for many people, leaving those things aside, their candida often improves. Uh, we have somebody in the chat room right now um, interested in exploring a plant-based diet, wondering if that could help with their hypertension. And I'll add to that, given the fact that we're talking a lot about memory today, is there any connection between hypertension and cognitive performance? Oh my goodness. Um, First of all, I'm sorry you're dealing with hypertension and, and your instinct is exactly right. A plant-based diet is where you want to go. First of all, hypertension, high blood pressure is really destructive to the body in general. It's, heart, it's rough on the heart, it's rough on the kidneys, and it's rough on the brain. Uh, as you can imagine, it increases the risk of stroke, uh, but it's just uh, harming the blood vessels day by day by day to have all that pressure in them. You want to bring it down. So first of all, measure your blood pressure. Follow your doctor's advice. If your doctor puts you on medications, take them. You don't want to fool around with this. But in addition to that, you want to be on a really healthy diet. I'll tell you what that is. And as time goes on, your doctor may decide, gee, I guess you don't need these medications anymore. That can happen. But So follow your doctor's advice. But here's the diet. The diet is a plant-based diet. Why? Because a plant-based diet does not have any animal fat in it. How, how could that matter? Animal fat, cheese fat, pork fat, beef fat makes your blood more viscous, more, more thick, more like oil, less like water. And if your blood is thick, it's harder to, it doesn't flow as easily through your arteries and veins, and it takes more effort for your heart to push it along, your blood pressure goes up. So plant-based diet reduces blood viscosity. Secondly, plants don't have much sodium. When green beans come out of the ground, they, don't, they, they just don't carry a lot of sodium with them. That's not their thing. Sodium is a big part of cheese, there's some sodium in animal products, but not so much in plants, except at the factory. They, they take an innocent potato and put salt in it, and, and then it's to make potato chips. They're adding salt. But in their natural state, plants are low in sodium, high in potassium. And by switching from sodium to potassium, your blood pressure goes down too. But don't let that be all you do. If all you're doing is reducing salt or going to totally salt-free, that's good for a few points on your blood pressure. But do a vegan diet along with it. And then finally, just coming along with this, the, the healthy, low-fat, plant-based diet is not only going to make your blood less viscous and, and bring your blood 
pressure down for that reason. It's not just naturally low in sodium, especially if you avoid the high sodium foods, but what does it do for your weight? It brings your weight down bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. And the more you get rid of excess weight, your blood pressure come down, comes down even more. And so at some point, then your doctor says, you are doing fabulous. Let's back you off those medications. You don't need them anymore. And it's a very common thing for people to find a real benefit by doing this combination that I've described. And before we take our final question, I want to say a big congratulations to Ashley McDaniel, who's watching right now on YouTube, says that she's excited to be signing up for the Food for Life classes this year. She's been a nurse for 15 years, Dr. Barnard, and been plant-based now for three and a half months, already has lost, shocking, she says, 35 pounds. She is astounded by all that she has learned. A nurse for 15 years, such dramatic changes after only three and a half months. That is fantastic news, is it not? Well, congratulations. Welcome to the team. You're doing great. <laughs> Can't wait to get you involved in the Food for Life program as well. That just such a magical, magical program. Um, so absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. You can, you can reach a lot of people, inspire them, and sometimes save their lives. No question about it. The stories that come out of that program, they are shockingly astounding, amazing, just the greatest thing ever. And we'll talk more about that in a future episode. But the final question today comes to us from Instagram. We were just talking about uh, yeast, and that brings bread into the equation, plant-based by 30 on Instagram, wondering, is it okay to eat bread every day? And which bread is healthiest? Uh, great question. You know, bread gets um, maligned because of sort of the low carb movement has, has imagined that, that, that uh, it's, it's fattening. Um, bread is fine, you can have it every day, you can have it several times a day, bread is A-OK. -okay. Um, to tell you the truth, um, there's one kind that you'll find in just about every grocery store that, that I would suggest you look for because it's really convenient and it's good for you and that's the rye bread or the rye pumpernickel mixtures. The reason I sort that out is if you see somebody looking at a loaf of bread and they're reading all the ingredients, wondering are there animal ingredients in here or not. If it says rye, if, if it's rye bread or pumpernickel, buy it, it never has animal products in it at all. Pick it up, you'll discover it's low fat. It's got a mixture of protein and complex carbohydrate. About it's about 80% healthy complex carbohydrate, about 20% protein. That's good. Um, and so yeah, it's perfectly fine. One big exception, if you've got celiac disease, you know, if you're seriously gluten intolerant, then I'm sorry, you can't have any wheat products. But luckily, that's that's certainly not most people. All right. If we did not get to your question today, have no fear. We will save it and do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. And if you did feel like you've raised your health IQ by a point or two, go ahead and like this video and subscribe to the channel right here on YouTube as well. And a favor to ask, actually something really exciting that I wanted to take a second to talk about, uh, Dr. Barnard, and that is that we have a big fundraising challenge happening now through July 10th that all of the exam roomies can get in on because uh, through July 10th, all donations to the Physicians Committee will be doubled. And those donations go to a lot of things, including bringing the exam room podcast and the exam room live to the air each and every week. So if you are interested in helping us bring the show to air and also continuing our groundbreaking clinical research and proving that food can be medicine and making sure that there are the facts to back that up, we are working harder than ever on all of this and we need your support to make this happen. So I'm thrilled to announce that we will be doubling donations through July 10th. And so if you donate $10, automatically becomes 20. If you donate 25, that becomes 50. 50 becomes 100. Uh, 100 becomes 200. It's just so much good that can come from this. So if you can, please visit pcrm.org slash match to help support the work that we do at the Physicians Committee. And Dr. Barnard, that support is needed now more than ever. It, it certainly is. Um, every time we, we answer a question, our questions and answers always are addressed by the research that we're doing here. We bring in people, we change their diets, we publish the findings in the research literature. It can be diabetes, it can be weight issues, it can be cholesterol. It can be all of the things that we've discussed here now. And this is a way to save lives and to help people to really get power they didn't have before. And then we have to get that information out through nutrition programs and good educational programs like the exam room. And uh, I, I'm happy to say that for right now, people who have wanted to, to support us and they're wondering when's the best time. The best time is, is right now 
because just as you said, Chuck, um, every donation is doubled, and it goes. It, it it's it's doubled in such a way that it is twice as powerful in supporting the research, the education, and the life-saving work that we're doing. So, thank you to all those people who have donated already. And if you're thinking about it now, is a great time. Absolutely. And and somebody may be wondering, well, how how is it possible that you can double my dollars? Where is that money coming from? And it's coming from the exceptional generosity of one particular Physicians Committee member who lost a family member to a preventable chronic disease. And just as we were talking about uh, so many of these Alzheimer's cases being preventable, they don't want to see any other family have to suffer the way that they did. They want to see everybody live as long and as healthy and as happy of a life as possible. And this is what they are doing to help ensure that we get this healthy message out there, bring that research uh, to the forefront, bring these shows to air. So that's where that money is coming from. So an extreme debt of gratitude to that particular Physicians Committee member and also to you. So pcrm.org slash match is the place to go to double your dollars until July 10th. And Dr. Barnard, my friend. Thank you so very much for your time today. This has been really enlightening. Thank you, Chuck. And thanks to all our listeners today. Of course, the conversation does not have to stop here. We have so much more brain boosting materials for you to soak up right now on our website. So remember to visit PCRM.org and click Health Topics right at the top of the screen and then select Alzheimer's and you will find a wealth of information there. And I would like to share this quote from that page with you just to kind of finish up what it is that we've been talking about today and give a little bit more hope. It says, quote, a decline in brain health is not an inevitable part of aging. But how we eat and live can help us protect our memory and stay sharp into old age. And you know, you can also go back and revisit some of our past episodes with the Brain Docs, Drs. Dean and Aisha Shurzai, where we dive deeper into the science of Alzheimer's and brain function and the critical steps for brain health, the steps we should all be taking. And of course, Dr. Barnard said today, 80% of these cases in his estimation are avoidable. That's a big, big, big number. So the big takeaway today is that, yeah, we have a lot of control. And if we smarten up with what it is that we eat, we can seize that control and remember to live a long and healthy life. You know, one of the other parts of our conversation today was diabetes. That came up when we were talking about people considering Alzheimer's disease to be type 3 diabetes. But there is some new research about type 2 diabetes that's making headlines. So let's get you clued in right now as we head over to the exam room news desk. Vegetables are proving to be a powerful tool in the fight against diabetes. A 10-year study of nearly 1,500 adults finds that eating four servings of vegetables per day can lower your risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 42%. Researchers say they found that to hold true regardless of whatever else a person was eating in their diet. Allium vegetables appear to offer the biggest benefit for women, while red, orange, and yellow vegetables, as well as legumes, seem to have the greatest impact for men. Women who loaded up on four servings of veggies each day saw an even more substantial reduction in diabetes risk. But researchers also say just 33% of participants were eating those four servings. So definitely some work to be done to get people to eat their greens. Or in this case, their reds and their oranges and their yellows too. But if you were wondering though, what an allium vegetable is, they were talking about that in the study. Well, allium vegetables are the family that includes things like onions and garlic and leeks and scallions. And by the way, a 2002 study showed that eating ample amounts of allium vegetables can reduce the risk of prostate cancer among men. So that's pretty promising there as well. 
And one more time, a huge thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Their support of the Exam Room Live and the Physicians Committee is helping to raise our health IQs and makes this episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations just like ours that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit them online right now at GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. And I would also like to take a moment to send condolences to Allison Mahoney, who runs the Greg Fund. She sadly right now is mourning the loss of her adoptive horse, Henry. She and Greg adopted him together in June of 2014, quite literally rescued him from starvation. And she wrote eloquently about Henry in her most recent newsletter that she sent out. And she said, quote, Greg was convinced that although we had little horse experience at the time, no learning curve was too steep when this horse needed us. After Greg's death, Henry's story was among my major inspirations to create the Greg Fund and work to end cruelty toward equines. She believes that Henry died after suffering from chronic liver disease that was likely caused by the drugging that came about from his five years as a racehorse. And she hopes to get the word out through the Greg Fund that this cruelty has to stop. So, Allison, we are sending you all of our best. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I would like to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here, raising our health IQs, and helping to improve our memory. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>